Well, if you have your Bibles with you this morning, turn to the book of 1 Samuel. 1 Samuel, uh, actually, you're going to go to a number of places, so start at Ezekiel. You're like, that is a far cry from 1 Samuel. I know, Ezekiel 34, start there. Uh, we will get to 1 Samuel as we progress along. We're in the middle of our Advent series, and so we have been looking at characters from the Old Testament or events from the Old Testament that help to point our hearts uh, towards the coming of Christ. Uh, that's what Advent means, literally, an eagerly awaiting anticipation of the coming. And so uh, we have looked at Christ as a branch of the root of Jesse. Uh, we have seen him in Joseph's life last week. This week is from David. Uh, next week will be from Jonah, and then Christmas morning uh, we'll celebrate the arrival of Jesus. And so uh, kind of a fun, interesting, different series. Um, in the new year, I'm anticipating beginning a new series in Nehemiah uh, and looking forward to probably spending time with Nehemiah and Ezra. But this morning, this morning we're thinking about David and how does he help to point our hearts toward Christ. Uh, and so we want to think of David and Jesus this morning as good shepherds. And obviously David is well known for this. We're going to look at some particular aspects of his life uh, and see how they help to point us to Christ and help us to understand it understand him. Sheep and shepherding uh, is an interesting profession, um, and it, there's, there's so much in the Bible about sheep and about shepherding that as we start this morning, and we want to think about Christ coming as the shepherd, as the ultimate good shepherd, we're going to look particularly and see how David as a shepherd points us to Christ. It's important we understand some things about sheep first. Um, now, all of us are sheep, right? So, uh, even a pastor, you know, where pastor actually comes from the French word for pasture, uh, which is, that's why they're called shepherds. And uh, you think of the New Testament, First Peter, they're told, pastors are told to shepherd. But the reality is serving as a pastor, as an elder, we are sheep. Um, maybe the closest you can come is a player coach. Uh, we, we fulfill a role, fulfill a responsibility. Pastoring, though, is not my identity. Uh, I am, first and foremost, a sheep of Christ before I'm ever an under-shepherd for Christ. And so identify with all these. I, I say that because I'm going to say some things about us as sheep that are not so kind. We as sheep um, are, are, as animals, not the brightest sort out there. Um, we, are, we are prone to be resistant to be led. Uh, we are uh, helpless. We don't, we don't come equipped with fangs and claws. Uh, we're not particularly fast. Uh, we're not known as these incredibly nimble creatures, right? Um, people don't pick sheep as the mascot for their football team because uh, they're kind of weak. Uh, they, they have to be defended. They have to be protected. Uh, their wool is a blessing to many, but if their wool is not shorn on a routine basis, uh, it becomes a hindrance and a danger to them. This gal, Sheila, uh, was missing for six years in the, some of the mountains of Australia before she was found. Uh, she had wandered off, run away, and when they finally found her, they had to shear 88 pounds of wool off this gal. Um, she, it, it was infested, and it was thick, and it attracts bugs and insects and pests. Sheep, sheep in certain situations, if they fall over, they cannot get up on their own, right? Uh, they don't have the, you, some of you are old enough to remember the old Life Alert commercials, right? Help, I can't get up. Um, this is sheep. They've got to have people tip them over. So shepherding, for Christ to be our shepherd, is to be caring for animals, creatures. 
who are habitually in danger, who are resistant to being led, and yet who need constant care. Have you ever had to try to care for somebody who doesn't want to be cared for, but if you don't care for them, they're going to die? Uh, and, and it's really difficult. It's really painful. I, I think a good video of it that shows it is uh, this one from Russia, uh, trying to take care of this little lamb. Uh, the poor thing is caught in a ditch, right? You got to help it out. Uh, and I just love this, this guy. He's, he's a little boy, but he is passionate about caring for his lamb. Uh, he is not going to stop until he gets it out of the ditch. Such is the life of the shepherd. Finally, it's free. Look at it as it runs. What a noble creature. And that is us. Um, you know, the reality is we need a righteous shepherd. We need a good shepherd. We are prone to wander. Um, we are prone to exact great effort from our Heavenly Father and run right back to things that we should not be doing. And so David will actually help us, help to point our hearts to Christ this way. When we think of shepherding uh, in the Bible, shepherding becomes this uh, almost euphemistic word for leadership all through the Bible. Uh, in fact, it's for when men are called shepherds in the Bible, in the Old Testament in particular, it always starts to highlight uh, their leadership ability. Joseph is called a shepherd when he's introduced to us. David is called a shepherd when he's introduced to us. Moses uh, spends 40 years shepherding as preparation to lead the children of Israel. Christ will call himself the good shepherd. Shepherding becomes synonymous with leadership. Uh, because it's a recognition of its sacrifice of caring for and leading people who, if they are not shepherded, will die, but who frequently are resistant to good shepherding. Um, we think we want it, but we really don't. When you think about leadership, then you can essentially boil good leadership down to two key words, character and competency. Our history books are filled with failed leaders, right? And so if, if you just go, you think Richard Nixon, right? And so um, lacking the character to not break the law. Or you think of George Custer lacking the competency to recognize that he was over his head. Or George McClellan lacking the character to pursue the enemy forces and essentially costing thousands upon thousands of more lives. Mao Zedong lacking the character to be honest that China needed food and that communism was a failed experiment. Instead, we actually don't know to this day how many tens of millions of Chinese starved to death under his leadership. Character and competency is what is required. The Bible bears this out. If you look at the requirements for deacons and for elders or pastors, what you see is a long list of character qualifications with a few competency, competency issues filled in. Deacons, they, they should have first been proven to serve well. Both should be able to rule their home or lead their home well. Pastors should be apt to teach. And, and so there's some competency things, but the reality is the overwhelming majority of the requirements are character. When you think about leadership, you can boil it down to character and competency. And so when we start thinking about the Bible talking about shepherds being synonymous with leadership, 
and we understand character and competency. And we can start thinking about what then makes a shepherd have character or how is it revealed that they have character? And what does a competent shepherd really look like? I would point this out. I would just ask you in that video, was that a competent shepherd? The test of his competency was not the behavior of the sheep, was it? No, you would actually say a competent shepherd with character will go get him out of the ditch again. Not just let him starve to death there and abandon him, right? And so this is really difficult for us because particularly in American or westernized culture, I don't think it's just America, we have moved away from character and competency as the test for leadership and we've begun to constantly look at results. And if you can get the results I want, then that must prove that you're a good leader. Unfortunately, if we put Jesus to that test, he's an abject failure, isn't he? As he ministers to thousands who then abandon him and his own friends turn against him and even some of his personal family and abandon him. Character and competency is what we must look for. And David can help to point us to that reality in a good shepherd. And so we're actually going to start in Ezekiel 34. And the reason we're going to start there is because sometimes we can learn things sharper, put things in a sharper focus from the negative before we look at the positive. And, and Ezekiel 34 does that for us largely. And what it does is it addresses a group of men that the Bible would later call hirelings. A hireling is simply this. You're a shepherd. Uh, you've got other business to take care of. And so you hire people to watch your flock. Uh, now, those could be really quality people. Just the fact that they're hired alone doesn't mean that they're going to be bad shepherds for you. Uh, but you can also hire people that they, hirelings would refer to somebody that's only in it for the money. They don't really care. I think the closest we can come is if you were to watch the news or with any frequency or check the news, um, it seems like you, a month can't go by where there's not some babysitter or daycare facility or even school that has failed a child, right? Um, my, my kids ride the school bus and their school bus driver, Mr. C, uh, he always has a clicker and a counter and he's learned every kid's name. And I ask my children, do you know why he has that clicker every day? And so he can go back and check and make sure all the kids who got on the bus got off the bus. Because there's been too many times where children have been left on bus and sometimes with tragic results, we think of those folks as hirelings. They're not passionate about the child, they are passionate about the paycheck maybe, or maybe they started as passionate about the child, but time and weariness, or maybe other things in life have made them drift. A hireling is somebody who's in it for the money. When you want somebody to care for a loved one, you want somebody to care for them, right? Not just provide care, but to care about them. Hirelings don't, and yet they were shepherding in Israel. Peggy Noonan wrote this about the American presidency. She said, in a president, character is everything. A president doesn't have to be brilliant. He doesn't have to be clever. You can hire clever. You can hire pragmatic. You can buy and bring in policy wonks. But you cannot buy courage and decency. You can't rent a strong moral sense. A president must bring those things with him. And so before I even point to these guys, I want to say this character. The character of a leader is someone who loves the people they're leading more than themselves. That's really what it boils down to. That's all it is. And you can talk about it being honesty and righteousness and integrity. All that's true. But there's so many things a leader's going to do that we'll never see and we'll never know. But unless they are driven by a love greater than a love for self, their character will be a failure. 
That's really what Peggy Newton uh, is getting at, whether she realizes it or not. And so let's look at these hirelings, and you can see it through the behavior. The prophet is condemning the false leaders of Israel. And he uses shepherding language to show how terrible they are. And so in Ezekiel 34, it says, Son of man, prophesy against the shepherds of Israel. Prophesy, say to them, even to the shepherds, thus says the Lord God, Ah, shepherds of Israel, who have been feeding yourselves, should not shepherds feed the sheep? You eat the fat, you clothe yourselves with the wool, you slaughter the fat ones, but you do not feed the sheep. The weak you have not strengthened, the sick you have not healed, the injured you have not bound up, the strayed you have not brought back, the lost you have not sought, and with force and harshness you have ruled them. So they were scattered because there was no shepherd, and they became food for all the wild beasts. My sheep were scattered. They wandered over all the mountains and on every high hill. My sheep were scattered over all the face of the earth with none to search or seek for them. The imagery is, would have been even more profound in this agrarian culture where we were full, full of people who raised crops and who raised animals and who were shepherds. It would be like if the closest we can come, I think, is if you have several children and you decide to go away on a vacation and you leave your children in the care of someone else for a week. And when you come back at the end of the week, they're wearing the same clothes they were wearing when you left. They're covered with cuts and bruises. They have not been bathed, and it's clearly that they're hungry. You trusted them to someone else, and instead they abused them. What God is saying is, I am the shepherd of Israel, and I've entrusted my flock to you, and this is how you've treated them. There's three things that you could roughly point out. They eat the sheep instead of feed the sheep. Can you imagine as a shepherd, you have your little clicker. You know how many sheep are in the flock. You've got 97 sheep in the flock. You get back, and all of a sudden you've got 83. You're like, where are they? And you see this guy that you hired over here, and he's wearing a new wool coat. Where did that come from? You see, you can get wool from a sheep by shearing it, but if you're going to get wool from a sheep by shearing it, I just want you to know this, you've got to get real down and dirty and close to that sheep. You can't shear a sheep without smelling like sheep. Especially in this day and age. They don't have these nice harnesses and electric shearers. They've got these scissors that they're constantly having to sharpen. And some of the sheep's wool would be so thick, uh, be so dense to cut through, they would actually have to be sharpening the, the scissors while in the midst of shearing even one sheep. I mean, you're getting real personal with this thing. But it's actually a kind work of God because as a shepherd is spending time with the sheep and getting this close to it, guess what? You would know if it has a cough, you would begin to recognize if it has a wound, you would, you would be in an intimate personal knowledge basis with the sheep. That's one way, but the problem is if you shear the sheep that way, it takes time, it takes energy, it takes effort. You're going to smell like sheep. You're, you're going to be well acquainted with this sheep. Then you've got to work the wool. You've got to tease it out. You've got to spin the wool before you can ever make a coat. That's a long and laborious process. You know what's much quicker? Slit its throat and skin it. And that's what these shepherds do. They're out in the flocks. They're hungry. So they kill the fattest one. They skin it. They put on its coat. Because they're cold. They ignore the sheep instead of caring for the sheep. If the sheep is wandering or lost, they don't bother to try to find it or look for it. If it's wounded or hurt, they don't bother to care for it. All of this boils down to one driving issue. Hirelings, bad leaders, bad shepherds are in it for themselves. You might remember that that was actually one of the 
accusations that the church in Corinth made against Paul as a shepherd. You're in it for yourself. And it was, it was almost, frankly, ironically humorous. Because on one hand, they were mad at Paul because he wouldn't take their money because he didn't want to be in their pocket, really. They wanted to control him. So they said, we'll be your benefactor. And then you preach and say what we want you to say. And Paul said, no, I don't want, I'm not going to take your money. And they were mad at him about that because they couldn't control him. But then they also got mad at Paul and said, you're in it for the money. And you're like, how can that be? How can Paul be in it for the money, but he won't take your money? The reality is it was laughably wrong. But what they're accusing him of ultimately, all the way you boil it down is you're in it for you. You're doing this job for how it benefits you. That's why Paul's only defense could be, look at all that this has cost me. Shepherding work is costly work is what he's telling us here in Ezekiel 34. And bad shepherds aren't willing to put in the work. They're in it for themselves. Bad leaders are in it for themselves. Can I just tell you something? That wouldn't just apply to presidents or, or politicians or administrators. It, it will apply to managers at your work. It can, it can apply certainly in the life of your church, and it can even apply in the life of parents. We're in it for ourselves. One of the best bits of counsel I ever got, I was still single, was a friend of mine, a mentor, he was married, had a little child. He said, Steve, one day you're going to be married and you're going to have kids. Don't ever discipline your kids to please somebody else. In other words, don't deal with your children to make other people happy. Deal with your children with the way Christ would want you to deal with them. Now, there's by no means I've done that perfectly. No means. But it was good and sound advice because even in parenting sometimes, you can be driven by a fear of how you look. Right? Guess what that will result in? Bad shepherding, because the only one you're loving is yourself at that point, instead of the child in Christ. And so bad shepherds, they lack character, because at the end of the day, they love themselves, they don't love God or the sheep they're caring for, but they also lack competency. And it's driven by the character, but it's like they won't do the hard work. They only want to do what's easy and what blesses them. So good shepherds sacrifice themselves for the good of the sheep. They care for defenseless, defenseless animals. They expend their energy. They take on the risks out of love. They put sheep ahead of themselves. They have character of sacrificial love and competency of soothing service. Now, with that in mind, now we can go to 1 Samuel. And we can look and see this in David and how he points us to Christ. And so let's talk about character first. And let's talk about David as the shepherd of Israel. And so if we go all the way back to the beginning of David's story, that's what we find in 1 Samuel chapter 16. The prophet Samuel is told after Saul, King Saul, who is now no longer going to be king of Israel, he's told, Samuel's told by God, go to Jesse's family and there you are going to anoint one of his sons to be king. And so Samuel goes and he travels and he has to uh, go with a story of sacrifice because otherwise Saul would kill him because Saul is now terrified of losing the kingdom. And then we find this amazing moment in chapter 16, about right in the middle, verse 11, of when finally David comes. All the other sons of Jesse have been brought before Samuel, seven other sons, but then finally he brings David. And so 1 Samuel chapter 16, verse 11. Then Samuel said to Jesse, are all your sons here? And he said, yet there remains yet the youngest. But behold, he is keeping the sheep. And this is how David is introduced to us as the shepherd. Samuel said to Jesse, send and get him, for we will not sit down till he comes here. And he sent and brought him in. Now he was ruddy and had beautiful eyes and was handsome. And the Lord said, arise, anoint him, for this is he. 
Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of the brothers. And the spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward. And Samuel rose up and went to Ramah. Now, this is fascinating because Israel had chosen Saul to be their king. They wanted a king. Um, so they said, we're going to pick a king. We're going to find a king. And the king they picked was this guy, Saul. Saul is described as standing head and shoulders above all the other men in Israel. He's a tall guy. Um, he, he is known as a warrior. He's known as good looking. Um, he is r- rolled into one, the, the George Clooney, Brad Pitt, uh, kind of Navy SEAL administrator, politician, all rolled into one. All the girls want him and all the guys want to be like him. That's who Saul is. And it's all external. Have you ever seen somebody walk into a room and it seems like everybody's driven to them because of how good looking they are, how capable they are, captain of the football team. Everybody wants to be around them, wants to be led by them. There's all these studies done about what is leadership. Is leadership externals or internals? Who are the best leaders? People that everyone assumes should be a leader or people who have character and competency. And Saul is picked because of his outward appearance. He looks good, and everybody assumes they want to follow this handsome guy. You might remember, uh, some of you, maybe, maybe even the news stories, um, but the very first televised presidential debate between Richard Nixon and JFK, Richard Nixon was coming off of the flu and was sick and pale, and even though it was in black and white, JFK, JFK had recently come from vacation and was tanned, young, good-looking. They can look back and see an immediate sway just because of physical appearance. This is the way we're prone. Man looks on the outside. God looks on the heart. And Saul is chosen by them for this reason. And so it's fascinating because when Samuel comes, there's this whole theme that develops in the choosing of David. And the question is, do we choose him because of how he looks? In verses 6 and 7, if you go back up in the chapter, God has this whole interaction with Samuel. Verse 6, when they came, he looked on Eliab, that's the oldest brother, and thought, surely the Lord's anointed is before him. And why? Because he's tall and good looking, to be honest with you. But the Lord said to Samuel, do not look on his appearance on the height of his stature because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outer, outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. By the time we get down to David, the father thinks it could never be him because he's the youngest. He's a shepherd. He's, he's doing this work that as you grow up, nobody else wants to do anymore. Because, as I've pointed out, shepherding is hard, dirty work that takes a lot of energy and a lot of effort. He's too young. They're still looking on the outward appearance. But God has already primed the pump and said, no, I'm actually looking at the character of David. And so what we're left with is this idea that as God looks at David, he's looking at one that can be trusted because of his heart. If you look back down in chapter 17, you begin to come to the end of the story of David and Goliath. As we leave out of Samuel choosing him, we're left with wondering what is the character that God sees that we don't. This is why David and Goliath is there. It's intended to reveal to us the heart that God saw that none of us saw. When David comes, there's so many already types of Christ in the moment. David arrives uh, on the battlefield uh, going back and forth, and his oldest brother accuses him of just being in it for himself. He says, you know what, David? You're here because there's evil in your heart. Jesus is accused of doing what he's done 
for himself and for evil in his heart. Uh, later, David, we'll find out David is 30 years of age when he's anointed king. Jesus is 30 years of age when he rises into his full messianic revelation. When he shows up to fight Goliath, we have this nine foot, six inch giant. Someone that no one else will stand in front of. People are terrified of. Multiple times, Goliath comes and, and it's actually revealed that for 40 days he's tempting which helps again to point us to the 40 days of temptation that Christ endures. But there's one that I want to point to the most, and it's in 1 Samuel 17, 4. It says this, There came out from the camp of the Philistines a champion named Goliath of Gath, whose height was six cubits and a span. What does that word champion mean? The word champion literally means one who stands between. And it's this idea that uh, two armies would sit there and instead of everyone engaging in war, we'll pick a champion, you pick a champion. The champions fight it out one-on-one -on -one, and whoever wins then that army is the victor and so we all don't have to die. That was the idea. The concept then is for Goliath to be the champion, the one that stands in between. And so the one who stands against him becomes the champion for Israel. And so I don't want us to miss this moment. What David is doing is David is standing between God's people and the enemy who would kill them. It's a character revealing moment. And why would David do it? That's what 1 Samuel 17, 34 through 36 reveals. Is it because he's in it for himself? Is it because he thinks so much of himself? Is David in this moment, does David take this position of leadership, this position of an advocate, of a stand between, of a champion, does David do it in order to get fame and fortune? The winner is going to get the king's daughter. Later, they're going to sing songs about him. They're going to celebrate him. Everybody's going to know who he is. Is that why David is doing it? No. David said to Saul, your servant used to keep sheep for his father. When there came a lion or a bear and took a lamb from the flock, I went after him and struck him and delivered it out of his mouth. And if he arose against me, I caught him by this beard and struck him and killed him. Your servant has struck down both lions and bears, and this uncircumcised Philistine shall be like one of them, for he has defied the armies of the living God. David is a man of character. This isn't making his character. It's revealing it. It was already there. Chapter 17 is putting on display what God saw in the heart that you can never see on the outside. Though Saul stood head and shoulders above every other man, who's supposed to be the guy to go fight him? Nine foot six inch giant. Who would you send? The 14-year-old the boy? Or do you send the accomplished warrior, well over six foot tall? Who has the best chance? Saul lacks the courage. Saul lacks the love of God or the people he's shepherding to do anything about it. You know, I think it's a good reminder that God is not looking for all the beautiful people. He actually delights in using very broken, weak vessels. And so if you feel very broken and weak, you are, and that's okay, because it means that's who God wants to shine his glorious light out of. And so David is pointing us to a shepherd of Israel that they desperately need, and it points us to Christ. 
ultimately is the shepherd of our souls. And so if you turn to John chapter 10, we can see how Christ identifies himself as a shepherd. And we can begin to see how David's courage and his love, his affection, is actually pointing us to the one that will actually shepherd our own souls in Jesus Christ. The one whose birth we celebrate at Christmas. Jesus uses the title of shepherd for himself in John chapter 10. He says this way, truly, truly, I say to you, he who does not enter the sheepfold by the door, but climbs in by another way, that man is a thief and a robber. But he who enters by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. To him, the gatekeeper opens, the sheep hears voice. He calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he's brought out all his own, he goes before them and the sheep follow him for they know his voice. A stranger they will not follow, but they will flee from him for they do not know the voice of strangers. This figure of speech Jesus used with them, but they did not understand what he was saying to them. So you might be here this morning saying, I don't understand that either. Well, so Jesus unpacks it for us kindly. So Jesus again said to them, truly, truly, I say to you. And when it would say truly, truly, it's a way in the Bible saying, sit up, pay attention. This is important. I am the door of the sheep. All who came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not listen to them. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Jesus is describing here what shepherds would do at night in the wild. They would have their sheep out and Sheep have been grazing all day in the pastures, but now night is beginning to fall. How are you going to protect this flock who's prone to wander? As we saw in that video, prone to jump in ditches. Predators would prowl at night. How do you keep these sheep safe? And they had a couple of different methods. One is they might corral them into a canyon of sorts. Uh, as a, an enclosed space, thankfully, sheep can't jump that high and they can't climb walls. And they would get them in one spot so they could keep them. But, but just as often they'd be out in a large pasture land. What are you going to do? How do you corral them? And so they would begin to gather together uh, thorn bushes and thimbles. And um, they, would, they would create a hedge around them. And so as they would create this hedge, they would leave an opening. And the opening of this hedge, or even in a canyon if they drove them down into it, they would find a narrow spot. And they would find it so it was so narrow so they could lay across the entrance. And it meant no sheep could get out without going over them. And so they could easily stop them. But it also meant no predator could get in without first having to get by the shepherd here. They were literally being the champion of the sheep. Like David stood between evil and God's children. Jesus is saying, I corral you and I stand between all that is evil in this world and you. I lay my own life down. Don't miss the double meaning there. Even as the shepherd would lay down literally, physically on the ground in front of the sheep. He didn't wander and leave them there and say, well, uh, I'll just gather them up in the morning. I got to go find a nice comfy bed. He, I'll stay out here with them. I'll be here with them. I'll watch them. I'll smell like them. I'll, I'll, I'll be surrounded by them. I will suffer cold with them. I will be with them to protect them, to preserve them, to, to care for them all the time. And I will lay physically down. And Jesus is saying, I have laid down my life. Ultimately, I've died for you. That's love. That's good shepherding. It's sacrificial love. The character requirement for a good shepherd is that they would die for the sheep. We are wicked people. We are frail people. 
We live under the dominion of sin and Satan. All of us have sinned, the Bible says, and come short of the glory of God. All of us deserve wrath. The wages of sin is death. All of us are in desperate need. We cannot defend ourselves. We cannot protect ourselves ultimately. The great lie of Satan is that even as we follow him with our lives, living in sin and unrighteousness, is that it's all about us. And look at the freedom we have. And the reality is we are enslaved to sin. We desperately need someone who would come and be willing to die for us be willing to lay their life down for us. And so Jesus comes, and at Christmas we celebrate the birth of Jesus, God made flesh, so that he can live a perfect life to do what with that life? What does he do with that life? Does he rise through the ranks to become leader of the world? Does he rise through the ranks to be celebrated, to be honored? No, he rises through the ranks so that he might lay his life down for the sheep. He lives and he's born so that he might die. We're not fast enough to outrun sin. We're not fast enough to outrun predators. Some of us have already learned that you can even try to remove every sinful temptation from you. And the Bible is clear, don't make any provision for the flesh. And yet the reality is sin that lives in my own heart. I don't need anybody around and I can find ways to sin. I can think evil. I can believe evil can be prone to unrighteousness. Each of us can. We are in desperate need of a champion, a shepherd who would protect us. Reality is sheep, even uh, when they gather together, are no protection for one another. We'll fall over and we can't get up on our own. We need a shepherd who will pull us from the ditch, drag us back from the cliff, who will care for us all the time. We need a shepherd with character. The souls of men need a righteous Shepherd Israel needed a champion. They found one in Jesus. Our souls need a righteous shepherd. We have one in Jesus. It's not just the character. It is the competency. Joseph, as I said earlier, Moses and David are all emphasized as shepherds. It's a common way of thinking about a good leader in the Bible. The vocation heavily informed how they thought about leaders. And as we've seen, good shepherding is first and foremost a character issue. It is a putting the lives of the sheep ahead of themselves. But there is this competency component as well. The ability to care for sheep is no easy task. There's a reason David had to make sure someone else was watching the sheep. When his older brother said, I know when you come here, it's out of the evil of your heart. You should go back and care for the sheep. David had already been leaving someone to care for the sheep. David had found someone competent. And the Bible is telling us David would literally leave someone with the sheep, travel all the way to the battlefield every day, and then go back to care for the sheep at night. And so it was a constant practice. Shepherding is a 24-7 job. Driven out of love. It's hard work and it's exhausting. Part of the reason it's so profound that shepherds show up at the birth of Christ is because of the sacrifice they make. The the angels appear to them out in the pastures and they leave their flocks to go to celebrate the birth of Christ. They put their entire livelihood at risk to come to worship Jesus. It would have stood out to everyone and anyone else. The bad shepherds of Ezekiel 34 are a good reminder about their lack of care. Do you remember if the sheep was weak, they didn't, they didn't protect it. If the sheep uh, needed care and uh, needed its leg bound, they didn't do it. If the sheep had wandered, they didn't take care of it. 
They don't help the wounded. They don't protect the weak. They don't heal the hurting. So we need a competent shepherd. How can we even see that? Well, David shows us that in maybe one of the most profound of his writing. He was a shepherded shepherd. We know that David is a musician, and from a number of psalms, we know that he filtered songs through his life experience. Well, Psalm 23, that most of us are very familiar with, is, is maybe one of the most glorious depictions of this. We don't have time this morning to unpack all of the glorious truths from this one psalm. But I do want to help walk you through it enough to understand some of the um, pictures, the word pictures, the illustrations that David is giving. David, as a shepherd, as he would sit out in the pasture watching his own flock, sits down and begins to pen how God deals with him. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. And that's an emphasis at the beginning because when a sheep is shepherded well, they are prone to stick right close to the shepherd. It's what Jesus ultimately is saying in John chapter 10 when he says, my sheep know my voice. They don't follow after bad shepherds. The job of any under-shepherd is to point you to the chief shepherd. Not so that you'll follow my voice, but so that you would only follow his voice. That's actually great protection for you because what it means is if I were ever to say something to you different from what he would say, you would immediately recognize it. That's why we should call people constantly back to Christ in the word. He says, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. David has had the experience of sheep that stick right next to him. They don't want to go wandering off. And what he's saying is, I've received such care, such love, such affection, such leadership from God. I don't want to be led by anyone else. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. Sheep are easily skittish. Uh, They can fall into any rapid moving water and drown. And so it's this constant search to find good pasture for them. Sheep do a terrible job of differentiating between grass they could eat that is healthy for them and weeds they could eat that will kill them. The shepherd has to constantly figure that out. A goat will eat anything. You want to get rid of poison ivy? Send in the goats. You want to get rid of weeds? Send in the goats. You want to clean out the land? Send in the goats. You send in sheep, you're going to have a bunch of dead sheep and weeds are still there. And so it's a requirement that the shepherd would lead them in such a way that takes them to good food, that cares for them and recognizes that they'll be skittish if they go by rushing water and easily could even fall in on the riverbank and drown. He says, not so with God. This is not how God takes care of me. Does Christ not feed our souls with his word? Remember, good shepherds feed the flock. It is the test. What if you had a family in your church or in your neighborhood, maybe even a relative, and they said, man, I just don't know what to do with my kid. I don't know how to help them. They're 13 and they're struggling. You ask them, well, what's going on? Just walk me through what's going on. Well, Um, they're involved in all these sports and they're doing really well at them and uh, their grades are up and and they have all A's and B's. We're so pleased with that. They have a large friend group, but they just seem to be struggling. Well, what's struggling with them? Well, I don't know. They're like 75 pounds and sickly all the time. Well, how can that be? Your next question would be, what are you feeding them? Well, I don't feed them anything. Well, you're killing your kid. What are you talking about? I have them in the best schools and they're involved in all these events and they've got a great network of friends. And you say, none of that matters if you're starving them to death. The key delineator for an under-shepherd is that they feed the flock. In 1 Peter, they're told, feed the flock. When When Christ is talking to Peter himself, 
After Peter has wandered and he's been terrified and he abandons his mission, he goes back to fishing. You might remember the moment where Jesus shows up on the seashore and Peter's out fishing. They recognize that it's Jesus. So Peter jumps out of the boat, swims to the shore to see that it's Jesus. Jesus says, well, let me make you some breakfast. There's a whole illustration going on here. Let me feed you is what he's saying. And Peter goes, okay. So he goes and drags the whole net of fish back. Look at me, how zealous I am, Jesus, because he's insecure. And God says, you know what? Here, he takes the fish, he makes the fish. He looks at, at, at Peter and he says, do you love me? Peter says, yes, I love you. And what does he tell him to do? Feed the sheep. That's what he says. Our souls are hungry. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they shall be filled. Every day our souls are hungry. Here's a new diet plan for you. Only eat on Sunday. Some of us will lose weight. And eventually get sick. Because that's not how God has made us, is it? Why do we even pray as Jesus teaches us, give us this day our what? Our daily bread. Good shepherds feed. And, and I'm saying that simply because it points back to the chief shepherd, the good shepherd. He makes me lie down. He would take David where David could be fed. Now, here's what's hard about that. Sometimes the feeding happens in locations we don't like. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil for you're with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. Have you been in the valley of the shadow of death? A dangerous place. A place that is frightening to you. I, I think what's hard about fears is lots of times what scares me may not be what scares you. What scares you may not be what scares me. We, we're, we're these individualized beings. And, and so sometimes we can be dismissive of one another's valley of the shadow of death. And what I think is so helpful about Psalm 23 is it really doesn't matter whether I'd be scared in your situation or you'd be scared in mine. That doesn't matter. God knows that he's dealing with fearful creatures. And he takes us through valleys of the shadow of death. He takes us through them with, with health diagnoses that are terrifying to us. He takes us through those with relational struggles and abandonment. He takes us through those with financial hardship. He takes us through those with questions about the future. He takes us through those with confusing times. But he takes us through those and he never leaves us in them. Why would a good shepherd ever take you through a valley of the shadow of death? I think there's three primary reasons. One, because there's a greener pasture on the other side. In other words, the good shepherd never takes you or I through a valley of the shadow of death to destroy us. He's not on a mission to harm his sheep. That would be a bad shepherd, right? This is a season. This doesn't define life. He is journeying with you. Number two, so that you might see his rod in action. Now, the shepherd carried a couple of implements with them to care for the sheep. They carried a horn of oil. We'll see that in a moment. Why would they use that? But they also carried this, this stick, this rod. And uh, it was uh, anywhere from two foot to three foot long, thick piece of wood. Think about it if you took a, um, a, a bar out of your closet, a clothes hanger bar, and cut it down to two or three foot. Good, solid piece of wood. And what would they use that for? That was not used against the sheep. It was used against predators. 
And so if a creature came up, their long-range weapon would be a sling. We see David use that against Goliath. Their short-range weapon would be this stick. This would come as like a bat. And they could beat off animals. This would be incredibly necessary if you're dealing with wolves who would come and hunt in a pack. You don't have time to just start trying to pick them off, and they're too nimble and quick at times to be able to defeat them with just a slingshot. You'd have to get into the mess of them. Can you imagine wading into a pack of wolves? And this would be their weapon. To hold a bear at a distance in order to defeat them, or even a lion to defeat them. This would be a weapon. Sometimes, sometimes God takes us into the valley of the shadow of death so we might see his power against our enemies. Some of you will wake up on that one later. I need a shepherd who will destroy my enemies under his feet, don't you? I need a shepherd who can exact justice when I can't. I need a shepherd who silences liars when I can't. I need a shepherd who delivers from wicked people who desire my hurt and my harm. Second reason he'll take us to the valley of shadow of death, sometimes so we can see his rod in action. But then his third implement is his staff. The staff is famously that shepherd's crook with that hook on the end of it. And this is what they use to pull sheep close to them. I love that. A shepherd's staff is never used to push you away. It's always intended to draw you close. Do you know when you and I are most prone to wander? I I actually think it's in green pastures. (laughs) But sometimes we get so fearful in the valley of the shadow of death, we run away as well, right? Don't we begin to doubt his goodness and his kindness to us? Don't we begin to doubt that he's actually on mission for us? Don't we begin to doubt that he cares for us? Do you really love me? Do you really care for me? We recognize how unfaithful we are. Our hymn of the month, oh, come all ye who are unfaithful. We feel unfaithful. And it's so kind of God in the valley of the shadow of death to use his staff and to draw us closer to himself, isn't it? And so I think those are the three reasons just on the surface that we go through the valley of the shadow of death. He goes on there though. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. This is a profound uh, pointing ahead. I'm convinced actually to communion. We'll celebrate communion in our second service. That's all we're going to do is observe the Lord's Supper and, and celebrate communion. But it's a table in the presence of his enemies. Now, we don't mean that like one another are the enemies, but we are yet here, aren't we? We are still journeying in a land full of people that are opposed to Christ, full of people that are opposed to us if we follow Christ. We still live in a land with our own flesh that rages war against us, where we want to do what we're supposed to do, but we seem to find this law in ourselves, Paul says in Romans 7, where it seems like I can't do the things that I would do. And yet we can celebrate a table in the presence of... How could you ever sit down in the presence of your enemies? Wrap your mind around that for a moment. Imagine if you and I are in the military and we're in Afghanistan and we're supposed to sit down at a table with the Taliban. How could we ever table with them? We're supposed to sit there and we're supposed to celebrate together a meal and we're surrounded by the enemy. There's only one way you could ever at peace sit down to a meal surrounded by your enemies. Somebody's protecting you. That there's some kind of forward operating base, some kind of perimeter that's been set up so the enemy cannot get to you. Can I tell you this? Can I remind you of this? When the shepherd, the chief shepherd has called you to himself, Satan cannot steal you away. You are his. And so even in the midst of the terrible storms of life in the presence of your enemies, you can sit down. He says, you anoint my head with oil. They would go to a sheep, and there's a couple of reasons you anoint a sheep's head with oil. You anoint it with oil to protect it from insects. Uh, it's, it's like an animal version of off. 
And you'd, you'd pour this oil on them, you'd, you'd smear it through their head because their wool helps to protect their body, but their heads are largely exposed to, to flying insects. They don't have these whipping long tails like cows, right? Or a horse, and so they're left exposed and they don't qu- quickly run away from insects and so they would anoint their head with oil. And so one would be almost a protective, just create like a protective balm over the head of the sheep, but also oil was used to treat wounds and infections. And so it's not just that you line the sheep up and you take this horn of oil, you just dump a little bit on each head and you move along. No, you pour it on them. You know what? It's like, it's like when you take that baby home and you bathe the baby, right? And I remember the first one, uh, you bring home and you're trying to bathe them. You're scared to death. That little thing's going to squirt right out of your hands, right? You're terrified, but you finally get them washed. Uh, you're as wet as they are typically at the end of this thing. And then you rub uh, some Johnsons and Johnsons on them. And you get that fresh baby smell, right? They don't smell like spoiled milk, and they don't smell like the other end either. They're just beautiful, right? To anoint a sheep's head with oil was to get, again, personal and close to it, and to put a balm on it. Jesus is literally called the balm of Gilead, the anointing oil that comforts us, protects us, and heals us. David says, this is the way God treats me. Has God not done that with you? Have you not experienced the healing balm of Christ in your life? Strength when you had no strength. Courage when you had no courage. Peace when you're in the midst of turmoil. Healing when you're in the midst of sorrow. David says, this is the way God treats me. I'm a shepherd who's been shepherded. And surely then goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. And I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. David is comforted because he has experienced the kind care of God. He knows the intense love, sacrifice, and competency behind it. This is what David's thinking. David is a shepherd, and he's a good shepherd. And he's sitting there, and as he's caring for his flocks, and he's sitting there in the pastures with his harp, making songs, writing lyrics, he's thinking about all the ways God cares for him even better than he cares for the sheep. How can Jesus do that? How does he care for us that way? And it's because he's an understanding shepherd. And this, uniquely enough, brings us to Christmas. You know, Paul tells us, when we have gone through suffering, to comfort others with the same comforts we've received. And you don't have to suffer the exact way. It doesn't have to be exact. And that's why I'm actually convinced of it, and I know you are as well, because I've talked to so many about this, of a multi-generational church. I'm not interested in a church just for folks that are 25 and under. And I'm frankly not interested in a church just for folks that are 75 and over. I want a multi-generational church because as you go through life and have you, as you have experiences, part of God's design is for us to speak comfort into one another's lives. And so I assure you, whether, whether no matter the suffering to have experienced the comforting hand. One of the things, I've, I'll just give you one. One of the things I've experienced is I learned, I, I'm learning, it feels wrong to say learn. You ever have those lessons, you feel like you got it, and then you're like, you have this deep sense that I don't think I fully got it yet. Are you with me? Okay, so one of the things I've, I've begun to learn is, and I was saying this to one of my brothers recently, is become attuned to the ways God shows you his love and his affection become very clued in to even very small things of his kindnesses. Because I assure you, he is caring for you. 
That was born out of my wife's own journey with a wall full of post-it notes from everything from somebody just showing up and, and bringing us K-cups, coffee cups from Costco because we couldn't figure out a way to go to the grocery store to an aunt and uncle sending a funny video for us to just watch with our kids while my wife's on chemo and to work through this and begin to see God just showing up time after time after time after time after time. He cares for me, he cares for me, he cares for me. And so I've received that comfort from him and I'm gonna speak that comfort to you and to others. There is an understanding that comes from suffering, isn't there? You ever been around people that haven't suffered anything? They just seem a little clueless when you're hurting, don't they? Now the reality is, don't, don't be irritated. It will come. You're, nobody's going to go through life without suffering. It's going to come. So don't be irritated. Be patient. Don't long, boy, Jesus, could you take a little off of my plate and put a little on their plate? Don't be that person, right? Don't be that. But stand ready to be open and transparent about how God has ministered your hurt and be transformed by his ministry of comfort. So I say all that then to say, how can Jesus be that kind of shepherd to us? And it's because of Christmas he came. He knows exactly what it's like. Now he's God, right? So in his omniscience, he would know anyway. In his omnipotence, he would know anyway. So he doesn't have to do it this way. He chooses to do it this way. And so we end up with this glorious passage in Hebrews 4. We do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. At Christmas, we are celebrating that God made flesh to make payment for our sins. There's no question about it. Jesus is born to die for your sins and my sins. But the Bible's also telling us Jesus was also born so that he might sympathize with us. So that he might experience rejection. Illness. Grief. Betrayal. Persecution health issues, brokenness, broken relationships, overbearing religious leaders, and so much more. We don't ever have to doubt when we are in affliction that we have one who has tasted affliction. He's tasted all of it. Have you ever experienced the feeding of God? Have you not maybe even seen over the last year how God has met your physical and spiritual needs? Oftentimes, in the midst of turmoil and suffering, we focus only on the pain and not the provision of God for us. God is good to feed our souls and our bodies with the things that we need. Have you experienced the protection and discipline of God? In what ways have you seen or known his drawing of you to himself? How have you tasted his goodness in calling you away from temptation and sin? sin? Could it even be this Christmas that God is doing those very things? Could it be that even this morning he's reminding your heart, I am the good shepherd, hear my voice, come to me. Experience my protection and my provision, my care. The balm of Gilead anointing our heads with oil driving away the nagging insects and thoughts that seem to so afflict us so often. Christmas, Christmas is Christ's love put on display, preparing us ultimately, yes, for Easter. But then even after our souls have been bought, even after redemption is accomplished, 
we receive this constant shepherding care from Christ. David, the shepherd, points us to the chief shepherd and reminds us that the souls of men need a righteous shepherd. It's good to have a shepherd with character and competency. There's no one, no one who has more of that than Jesus, 